Hi there, and welcome to C-Speak Minnesota, the language of executives. I'm Jordana Green, once again from CCO, joined as always by my co-host, Kate Kelly, PNC Regional President. I'm so happy to be here once again. Kate, how's it going? Everything's great. Coming up on year end and everything's just very busy, but great. Yes. Well, Mm -hmm. happy holidays for everyone. And, you know, 2020 was a you know, a bit of a challenge. (laughs) 2021 certainly was a bit of a challenge. Uh, There were highs and lows in the financial market specifically. Our next guest has been watching it all very, very closely. Amanda Agati is the Chief Investment Officer for the PNC Financial Services Group, where she is responsible for the firm's overall investment strategy, portfolio, and risk management, investment solutions, and the development and the execution of investment policies for PNC Private Bank, PNC Private Bank Hawthorne, and PNC Institutional Asset Management. It is a mouthful, but Amanda, you have a lot going on. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Um, let's start off with this, this crazy year. You know, the market has been pretty volatile all year, and we're seeing another bout of it now. So what does that mean for 2022? Well, it's a great place to start, especially since we're seeing a pretty significant uptick in market volatility with the Omicron variant news starting to to pick up here in a fairly significant way. You know, in our 2021 investment outlook, we actually spent quite a bit of time talking about the concept of a high volatility regime really likely to be a driving force for the markets over the course of the year. The crystal ball prediction around high volatility was actually pretty accurate because it's been pretty choppy all year long. And so what we are seeing now as we're getting ready to publish our 2022 outlook is a very similar dynamic heading into the new year. A very simple uh, market-based measure of volatility called the CBOE volatility index. Really, it has been a simple but very precise gauge for what we mean in terms of a higher volatility regime. This metric has been really choppy all year, but with the Omicron variant news, it's now back above 30, almost two times the 10-year average, and it's back to the levels of early January of this year. And it's really, in our view, a reflection of how skittish investors still are about all things COVID-related. When you look at the VIX futures curve, so not just the nearest term price for volatility, but what the futures curve is pricing, all contracts out over the next six to nine months are actually sitting at levels uh, in excess of January 2020, so in in advance of the, the onset of the pandemic. And so by this gauge, we're definitely expecting to be in a higher volatility regime well into 2022. But what I think is notable, you know, a lot of people think about volatility as just an equity market story, but it's also playing a unique role in fixed income markets too. And so if you look at the bond markets equivalent of the VIX, it's called the move index. It's actually sitting at March 2020 levels, right at the thick of the onset of the pandemic. And I suppose that's not entirely surprising given how volatile the path for market-driven interest rates have been this year. The 10-year has been all over the map. And so that's certainly a reflection of the backdrop fixed income investors are facing. 
At the end of the day, though, a higher volatility regime doesn't automatically translate into negative market returns. And I want you to think that we're, we're suggesting an overly bearish tone here. It really just means that larger than normal price swings are indeed more likely to be the norm rather than the exception. And so our view on this is investors really need to stay buckled up heading into the new year. Wow, a lot's going on. Yes, Amanda, noted. Yeah, really. Amanda, what does the crystal ball foretell about the market's return in 2022? What is your prediction for the S&P 500 as an example? Yeah, so we have to shine up the crystal ball, right? This is the time of year exactly. where we're making all of our grand <laughs> predictions. I mean, unfortunately, I have to go back to this idea that we're not yet out of the woods as it relates to COVID and the pandemic at large. And although we have come so far from the depths of the, the pandemic and the market lows and the economic restrictions that were in place, it's clear that the variants that continue to swirl around are having an impact on sentiment as it relates to the market. And so we do think that that will also be a dynamic that's a key governor in terms of the market's ability to forge a path higher in 2022. But on a positive note, when we look under the hood, earnings and the underlying fundamentals of the markets continue to be quite strong. So for frame of reference, the S&P 500 earnings growth projection for this year looking like we're going to finish up an amazing 46% year over year. Now, obviously, we set a low bar for ourselves last year uh, with, with the challenges in the pandemic. But still in all, that is an amazing result just 12 months later. For 2022, we're seeing a pretty significant deceleration in earnings growth. Still looking at positive growth, so up about 8% all else equal relative to 2021, even in a non-pandemic year, that should be considered a home run. That, in our view, is enough to keep this market rally fueled. The challenge is where valuations are today. And so it's not a stretch to say that valuations are stretched here. We're still sitting at just under 21 times the forward P on the S&P 500. Long-term average, is about 15, so very notable in terms of elevated valuations here. In a market that's pricing for near perfection based on you know, PE metrics and analysis, it's not all that surprising to see volatility pick up here. There just isn't that much headroom or shock absorber when negative news like a variant comes into the narrative. And so at the end of the day, with these kind of dynamics trying to frame out the prediction, we do expect market returns in 2022 to largely track the path of earnings growth. Certainly another solid year, but at definitely a slower pace of advancement than what we've seen over the last couple of years and without the material tailwind, if you will, that we've seen from multiple expansion too. Okay. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. I will too. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's talk about inflation. Inflation is the highest it has been, and certainly in October, it was the highest it's been since 1990. So how do we protect ourselves when inflation is on the rise, if it's going to keep going up? It's such a great question. It's a question we get all the time from our clients and investors kind of wondering what the right way to hedge against 
um, and an elevated inflationary backdrop might be in portfolios. There's a number of levers that we can pull as it relates to hedging against inflation. The natural, I think, automatic go-to from our perspective is anything real estate, real asset, or even REIT, uh, real estate investment trust related. That, that tends over long horizons tends to be a very solid hedge against inflationary trends. But what I think is also interesting is that we think large cap dividend growth is very well positioned here. That category of stocks hasn't really participated to the same degree as other parts of the broader market. So the valuation story isn't quite as stretched there. Really, in an inflationary environment, you want anything that can outpace or outgrow inflation and anything that can throw off you know, high quality cash flow generation. So we think large cap dividend growers are very well positioned for this dynamic. And then believe it or not, this might be a little controversial, but we do like the idea of emerging market equities here. Again, one of the fastest growing equity asset classes in the multi-asset universe. And we think despite some of the overhangs as it relates to China and China's intervention, we think that emerging markets is very well positioned. On the fixed income side of the equation, for all the reasons why we like emerging market equities, we actually like emerging market debt too. <clears throat> we think that there's a a decent um, valuation story there and a very favorable yield pickup relative to most other fixed income asset classes. On the fixed income side of the equation, for all of the reasons that we like emerging market equities, we also like emerging market debt. There's a really attractive relative valuation story there as well as a yield pickup relative to most other fixed income asset classes. We also like private fixed income or structured credit. It's really an extension of high yield just in the private markets. And we really haven't seen valuations expand there to the same degree that we've seen in public markets. And so we think that's very well positioned as a hedge against inflation and also an attractive investment opportunity, um, putting the inflation backdrop aside. We also like leveraged loans here. You have to pick your spots very carefully there. You have to enter that exposure with a more actively oriented position. So don't buy the passive index. Um, that's, that's a buyer beware kind of call out here. But with leveraged loans having near zero duration, it's actually a really efficient hedge against both rising interest rates and also elevated inflation. And so Hopefully that's a sprinkling or a sampling of a couple of areas that we think are well positioned to hedge against inflation. Excellent. Oh, yeah, lots of interesting tools. Thanks, Amanda. Well, and what, what do you see with the infrastructure proposals and the packages coming out of Washington? And what does that mean to the markets and investors? So if you had asked me this question about six months ago, I would have probably said it's the single big, biggest risk to the market. It's the thing that keeps me up at night as it relates to the market's rally. But now that we're talking about it six months later and we have a little bit more tangible information on what may ultimately come to fruition, I'm not losing sleep over this one like I was. Um, okay. If you think back to the spring, that's the good news. If you think back to the spring, you know, we were talking about many trillions of dollars potentially being proposed in terms of not only traditional infrastructure, but also social related infrastructure. And while I fully uh, agree that the need is significant as it relates to infrastructure investments in this country, 
the challenge is always how you're going to pay for it. And so that's where the narrative around increasing corporate tax rates started to come into the equation. There's pretty much no scenario where the market is happy with corporate tax rates rising. And so, you know, moving into 2022, you know, with the projection around earnings growth only being 8%, a significant move higher in terms of corporate tax rates could really lead to a buzz cut in terms of earnings growth for next year. And with the market sitting at the valuation levels that we are at today, not much room, not much of a shock absorber there to take that kind of a hit just from a tax policy change. So that risk is much less today than it was earlier in the year, not only because what we got so far on the traditional infrastructure side was a fraction of what was originally proposed, and then the net new spending at at angle to it was only about 550 billion. I mean, it's sort of insane for me to say only when I'm talking about 550 billion, but that is manageable in terms of not only the economy, but also the market's path forward. We're not seeing that same narrative around corporate tax rates rise and the pay for is coming through at those levels. And so we think that the market can manage through that um, fairly well. From an economic perspective, it doesn't tend to move the needle too much. Um, it's probably a little counterintuitive. Um, you, I think you would automatically assume that infrastructure investments and stimulus indeed will be stimulative for economic growth. But the fact of the matter is that the spending is really spread out over a fairly significant period of time, you know, eight to 10 years or more. And so it doesn't really give you the shot in the arm. That's a really bad pun, but I did it to you anyway. It doesn't give you the, the shot in the arm all at once, right? The, the news, the headlines come out, but then the spending actually is spread out over a fairly significant amount of time. And so while it doesn't really move the needle for markets or the economy, in the short run. There are a few uh, narrowly focused sectors that we actually think stand to benefit, a little bit different this time from past infrastructure uh, packages. And those areas are notably electric vehicles and EV-related infrastructure, and then 5G and broadband, two areas that clearly need a significant amount of investment to really get off the ground. So we're, we're positive on traditional infrastructure spending for sure. But at the end of the day, not as much worried about how it's going to move the needle in terms of markets um, or the economy. We think it's it's manageable. The wild card, of course, is the so- social infrastructure package. It's still swirling around. We haven't really seen um, you know, proposals come to fruition here, but the odds of proposal seem to be fading here. And that's, at the end of the day, the reality when you're in a 50-50 Senate. It's very tough to get a lot of done uh, in, in one shot. And so that's something that we'll continue to watch closely, um, but we think manageable at this point. Oh, that's really helpful. Thank you. Yes. I hate relying on uh, Congress uh, for investment strategy, but I understand it must be done, but I I love the idea of electric vehicles and uh, 5G. So thank you for mentioning those in particular. Uh, I appreciate that. At PNC, you guys do a really fun Christmas price index. Can you explain it to the listeners and tell us what are this year's key takeaways from it? 
This is such a fun analysis. We've been doing this, believe it or not, for 38 years. And the idea here is basically to uh, have a lighthearted take on the Bureau of Labor Statistics um, Consumer Price Index. And so we take the specialty basket of goods and services that are in the classic holiday song, the 12 Days of Christmas, and actually price it and do some analysis around it and try to um, connect broader trends in the economy to what we're seeing in the specialty basket. And so this year, it's a whopping $41,205 and change to buy all 12 days worth of true love gifts from the classic holiday song. Or if you really want to make an impression um, by buying all 364 gifts by repeating the verses of the song, you're going to pay up. It's about one hundred and seventy-nine thousand um, dollars on a percentage basis. It's up about five point seven percent versus two thousand and nineteen levels, and that's not a. a, a, a an error on my part necessarily. We're, we're actually comparing to 2019. With most live in-person performances canceled last year as a function of the pandemic and the lockdowns, we had to remove these components from the index. And of course, I'm talking about the ladies dancing, the lords a-leaping, the drummers, and the pipers. And so by taking these components out of the index, it actually resulted in a 59% drop. Never before had we had to take any components out of the index, much less that significant chunk of them. And so thankfully with the reopening here, we're able to bring them back into the index. And so we think comparing versus 2019 pre-pandemic data makes a little bit more logical sense um, in terms of where we are around success and progress versus the reopening. And so uh, a lot of moving parts here, certainly relative to 2019. True Love is definitely going to be on the hook for all of those IOUs that uh, he or she could not produce last year. And so the live performances, believe it or not, are up about 7.2% versus 2019. But the biggest price increases by far, and we're talking 40, 50, and almost 60% moves come in the exotic pet categories, which I just have to laugh the way we're characterizing (laughs) them. Um, Higher food and labor prices, certainly what we're seeing in the broader economy are increasing the cost of raising the birds. But believe it or not, we're seeing some accelerating trends around backyard farming and dare I say, even farm to table. So we're seeing the demand side uh, as well as the supply side be a bit challenged there as it relates to those birds. So definitely the the most notable uh, movers in the index this year. And then of course, I can't uh, miss an opportunity to talk about my all-time favorite gift, the golden rings, another big mover in the index this year, but not always. Uh, gold rings are up about eight and a half percent. And this is really reflective of the trends that we're seeing in gold and other commodity prices with some of the lingering uncertainty in the economic backdrop. We've seen investors kind of dash for a store of value assets, certainly gold as um, one of them. And so we count gold rings um, in that category as well. At the end of the day, really what we're talking about here when we look at the specialty basket is what is the consumer facing, right? What what is the impact on consumer behavior? It's really the drumbeat for the U.S. economy with 70% or more of U.S. GDP tied to consumption. Consumer health really is a critical driver for the markets and the economy. And so this is always a fun analysis to gauge what the consumer may have in store for it. And so in thinking about 
the market's path forward, but certainly the economy's path forward. We're definitely focusing in on retail sales as a function of this holiday season, what's happening with savings rates, and then certainly sentiment as well, all key indicators in terms of what 2022 might ultimately look like. Oh, wow. Great information, Amanda. I just have to comment, there are no exotic pets in our household. We're sticking with our standard poodle. <laughs> I have a puppy myself. I'm not exactly looking for a number of other pets to take care of. So I hope my true love doesn't get me for calling birds, but yeah. you never know. <laughs> right, right. You know, Amanda, what's the most single important catalyst to drive markets higher in 22? And I know you talk about um, what the, the theme of all I want for Christmas. So what's at the top of our wish list for Santa this year? Yeah, this is a fun uh, analysis that we do annually as well. We started this a number of years ago. I thought it might be a fun challenge for the investment strategy team to say, what's the single biggest driver for the markets in the coming year? Let's put it at the top of our wish list for Santa and say, if this was the only thing that Santa delivered to us, either on Christmas morning or at some point in 2022, that would be the key catalyst for the market's path higher, um, a positive outcome for the markets. And so in the past, we've done, we've asked for a Fed pause. We've asked for trade policy clarity. We've asked for an earnings growth acceleration and positive revisions. And so this year, you're getting a little bit of a sneak preview because we haven't published this yet, uh, but in the next week or so, we're going to publish uh, the, the top of the wish list gift. And it really comes down to supply chain normalizations. And that may sound like kind of an insane thing to ask for, but the ongoing disruptions that we continue to see in supply chains across the globe are really the wild card for the inflation narrative. And so that really feeds into so many different aspects of both the economy and in the markets and in terms of market rotation, market leadership, even interest rates. And so very, very per pervasive in terms of the impact from the inflation narrative. But at the heart of it, believe it or not, is really these, the supply chain disruptions that we're seeing. Part of the challenge here with the disruptions is that COVID is still driving some of the challenges we're seeing around the globe. As regions reopen and we start to see a clearer path, we're seeing supply chain disruptions settle down, but certainly with news of this more recent Omicron variant and some news out of Europe talking about potentially putting restrictions in place, that's going to create a very uneven recovery and settling a normalization in terms of supply chains. And so we're seeing a very staggered effect as bottlenecks kind of form and then disappear. And certainly as the surge of demand comes back online and then fades as restrictions go back into effect. The positive news is that if you look at the underlying data, manufacturing PMI survey data in particular is showing an accelerating expansion. And so the backdrop, the economic recovery is still intact there, but we're seeing a very choppy result as it relates to the supply chain disruptions. And so we do think if we could get some normalization there, 
that would clear the path for both the markets and the economy in 2022. The one thing that's very nuanced, but I think is critical here is believe it or not, what's going on with the semiconductor or chip shortage and supply chain disruptions there. Um, that, that part of the supply chain has taken so much longer to settle. In fact, it hasn't settled as a function of Q3 earnings season. We haven't gotten much positive news there yet. It's taken much longer than initially thought to show signs of stabilization. And so um, at the start of the year, at the beginning of 2021, the expectation was that the shortage would stabilize by about now in Q4 of this year. Today, and based on Q3 earnings season and guidance, the consensus estimate is actually the mid to latter part of 2022. So that's going to be with us for quite some time. And of course, when I talk about semiconductor and chips, it's not just the automobile industry. It's a key component in things across the global economy. And so very, very pervasive there in terms of the impact. So we think at the end of the day, this is the single most important catalyst to drive markets higher, that is get supply chain normalization and stability. Um, and so that's what we're going to ask Santa for. I hope he delivers. Oh, that sounds great. Boy, uh, we have, we're asking you just at the right time. So that's wonderful. Thank you, Amanda. Amanda, thank you so much. We want we really appreciate you letting us sort of peel back the curtain a little bit and get in your head about what you're thinking looking forward. And we appreciate that for PNC also. We uh, are finding out how the sausage is made, and that's a, that's a good thing. We we really appreciate you, Amanda Agati, the Chief Investment Officer for PNC Financial Services Group. Of course, she's responsible for the firm's overall investment strategy, portfolio and risk management, investment solutions, and a whole host of other things. We are so grateful uh, for this conversation today. I know I learned a lot, Kate, and uh, thank you for allowing Amanda to, to come on with us because it was fascinating. As someone who doesn't function in the markets, I was taking notes. <laughs> oh, no, she, Amanda is just great. We are so fortunate to have her expertise and leadership at PNC and in our markets. So Jordana, this has been great. And Amanda, thank you so much. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And once again, for C-Speak Minnesota, the language of executives, I'm Jordana Green at CCO. As always, joined by Kate Kelly, PNC Regional President for Minnesota. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next month.